Hey friends, it's Corey Andrew Powell here, letting you know it's time to treat yourself with an exclusive Motivational Mondays deal at the NSLS shop. Listeners get 20% off shop-wide with the code MONDAYS. That's M-O-N-D-A-Y-S. Need a new coffee tumbler? Or perhaps you want to keep it classy with a new hardcover notebook? Well, get them on sale. Listen, with this deal, I'm tempted to trade in my bow tie collection for one of those cute NSLS hoodies. And don't forget, use code MONDAYS at checkout. That's M-O-N-D-A-Y-S. Enjoy that 20% off at shop.nsls.org. And stay motivated, leaders. Stay motivated. Hello, everyone. I am Corey Andrew Powell, and this is Motivational Mondays, of course. I'm joined today by Blake Johnson, a Los Angeles-based entrepreneur and philanthropist who has founded and successfully sold a variety of businesses throughout his career. His latest venture, Byte, was founded in 2017 and named by Forbes magazine as one of the fastest-growing companies. Uh, but it was the fastest-growing company, uh, going from zero to one billion in valuation that was bootstrapped and not funded by venture capital. So he just kind of did it all on his own. So Jake heads the Blake Johnson Alliance as well that provides Los Angeles-based youth with a safe, healthy, supportive environment, all of which helps them, of course, to prepare to be more successful in school and in life. Blake, welcome to Motivational Mondays. Thank you very much. Good to meet you, Corey. Thank you. You too. I mean, did I get that bio right? Because you've done a lot of stuff, so I don't want to get it wrong. You did it well. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> you're you're very welcome. So thank you. So you're very passionate about the philanthropy work. And as we were just speaking off camera a few moments, I know a big part of that and a big part of your brand mission is anchored in your own background growing up, which does include uh, a wonderful story about how you had a special mentor that inspired you. And I believe it was your principal. So speak a little bit about what that experience was like, like how it changed you pre-mentorship, post-mentorship, and then how it led you on the trajectory that you're on today. Sure. I grew up in a small farming town about two hours east of Tijuana in El Centro, California. El Centro, not many people know it, but it is uh, it has a number one ranking in one thing and one thing only. It has the highest unemployment rate in the nation. It has been that way indefinitely for, I think, as long as I can remember. So, very poor community on the Mexican border and relatively, you know, little opportunity outside of farming and agriculture. It was going, growing up there. My grandparents moved in the late sixties to basically start the school system down there um, and brought my whole family from, you know, the Wyoming area, Cheyenne, Wyoming down to El Centro. And they went from the hottest place, excuse me, the coldest place in the, almost in the U.S. to the, the god-awful hottest place. It was regularly 120-plus in the summer. So uh, it was interesting growing up there and, and really a blessing, I think, because it created a lot of perspective um, in later life of kind of having that environment and kind of recognizing, you know, the little opportunity. It was, it was you know, very present um, in that community that there wasn't very many people that got out of there. And, you know, the, the ones that got lucky – you know, moved 120 miles west to San Diego and maybe work construction. But uh, having kind of been down there and growing up in the 80s was was a blessing because, you know, in, in that time, it really allowed kind of a lot of exploration and, and to see and be a part of the community, albeit small community. Um, and I went to a small country school. It was miles from the nearest structure. Um, in the middle of fields. And it, I luckily had 
you know, a, a teacher and a principal in high school, or excuse me, in, in grade school that flagged, you know, that I could, should be thinking about something beyond the small farming community. And it took, it took kind of a seed and it kind of later grew his, his daughter, he was, he was a very interesting guy. His daughter was a year older than me. He was from Washington, DC and a member of Minsa. It was a, kind of the first time I got exposure to a really, really academically smart person. He kind of grew up in the, in the wrong part of DC. His teachers recognized that he was, he was, you know, extremely smart growing up and they just sent him to study on his own at the library of Congress. And so he just immersed himself in, in books and reading and, in fact, played a game with us and, you know, brought in a dictionary and he would pay us a dollar for every word he didn't know in the dictionary. I think, you know, all year he would do this once a week, but all year I think he paid out one dollar, you know, the whole year. <laughs> but uh, yeah. luckily yeah. he flagged um, and he had actually sent his daughter, Alia Brown, to a boarding school, very good prep school in California. It was only three hours away by car, but we took the Greyhound bus. So that meant it was seven hours with a lot of stops. And I took the bus up there, interviewed to the school. They miraculously let me in to this day. I'm, I'm you know, still thankful and surprised that I got in, but followed his, his daughter there um, and had the opportunity, you know, in high school to get exposure to a completely different world that kind of opened up my eyes to a number of different other possibilities and opportunities that, you know, I was later kind of able to guide myself towards. Yeah. And that, that's such a loaded experience that you shared there because it speaks to how very often you mentioned in that particular area, it was unlikely for people to get out and be able to change the path of their lives because of lack of resources or even just lack of having people who could help guide them. And we see that everywhere, really, when there's a community that's depressed or lack of resources, it's sort of like a cycle that you never get out of. And so that definitely makes sense why that would fuel you to then go back and, and make that a part of your life. So that gets us to your college years. How was that for you sort of transitioning from this small you know, community and now you're in an academic environment that there's, I guess I would imagine, a lot more diversity, a lot more new experiences, visually stimulation as well. What was that like for you? Uh, it, well, it was interesting. I actually had just set my sights, ironically, on going to the Naval Academy in Annapolis. I had a, a, a somebody older um, who was assigned my big brother when I was a freshman at, at, at this boarding school. I really looked up to him and admired him and, and was focused on following his footsteps. He ended up going to Annapolis and later became a Navy SEAL and had this kind of illustrious story and career that really sounded appealing to me. And I had my sights solely focused on that. And despite having the grades and all the recommendation letters and, you know, the, the resume, for whatever reason, I didn't get in. And I kind of look back at that and, and say that was a, a pretty pivotal break in my life in a, in a lucky way. One of those things that at the moment I was crushed, I had plans to go play tennis there. I thought I was going to get in, but in, in retrospect, it was somebody looking out for me on, on that one, which I, I you know, have a lot of faith that's happened too many times to explain through my life. Like a weird pivot will, will you know, inadvertently steer you in a better direction that you don't, can't recognize at the time. So I had all my chips there, didn't get in, was devastated. But the only other tennis coach I was really speaking with at the time was a gentleman by the name of Bill Wright. 
And for context, in my small little farming town of, of El Centro, California, all we did, we had cattle, school, and we had an asphalt tennis court. So this little neighborhood turned out this uncanny high number of Division One tennis players. And so I had aspirations to go, you know, play tennis. It was, it was decent at it. It wasn't, you know, you affiliate tennis with, you know, an affluent sport. It's quite the opposite. I was too slow to play soccer down there. And, and so by nature, it was, uh, it was the only other thing we really had available. So I ended up going to the University of Arizona out of there. And, and most of my class were going off to small liberal arts schools or Ivy Leagues. It was a pivot that, you know, it was a little different for me at the time. It was a harder pill to swallow given kind of where my head was at. But again, one of the luckiest breaks in my life was uh, despite the, the reputation of Arizona, it was an excellent academic institution, studied a lot, had a, had really a good foundation, and it kind of thrust you into the more uh, realm of developing EQ, which we all know in, in business and in life really, you know, carries a lot of weight you know, IQ versus EQ. And so the, the college experience was interesting because I had three jobs simultaneous. I worked hotel at night. I started a landscaping company. I went to play tennis. I ended up getting hurt shortly after getting there back home working cattle and had uh, broken my tailbone, sat me out long enough. I kind of got on a path of, of teaching tennis as one of my three jobs and going to school full time. But that, that whole, you know, four years of, of going there was, was interesting and it kind of thrust me into a different environment where I could, when I look back, was able to kind of hone in a lot of the skill set that played, you know, well in later life and, and specifically in business that I, I wouldn't have gotten at Annapolis and I wouldn't have gotten at a smaller liberal arts school had I kind of followed the peer group of my kind of high school crew. So that was, that, that was, uh, Another kind of, uh, you know, hard, critical cornerstone, you know, kind of sh- shaping life and shaping, you know, your perspective and skill sets. Mm-hmm. You know, when I have these interviews and conversations with successful people, very often, of course, CEOs or people who have just done really well in business in general, I always find these common denominators between them. And you just tapped into quite a few there. One is the idea of, at the time, things that are happening for you. If we step outside and look at it differently, it may feel awful at the time, but I spoke to a survivor of the Boston bombing, uh, marathon bomber, and she had this whole amazing story about how it, tra- it changed her and made her a more compassionate person. And all these great opportunities came from something as awful. And she said, you know, things that are happening to you sometimes in life were happening for you. Right. And um, that sounds very much like that. But then also the other thing is too, the other big leadership lesson that you just shared is the pivot, right? When you have all your eggs in one basket, you're like, this is it. I'm going to this school. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And the people who really are successful are the ones who are able to pivot and not get stuck in the moment. Correct. Right. Yeah. I've seen that time and time again, the ability to be nimble, uh, the ability to kind of fluctuate and, and being okay with that when things don't go your way, having, you know, the faith that you a have the ability to kind of persist through it, but B it often creates new opportunities uh, without hitting roadblocks. You know, it, it, it roadblocks are absolutely necessary in the path. And if you're not hitting them, you're doing something wrong. You're not on the right path. The right path often is one that you're not anticipating. 
when we start businesses and I'm now launched my sixth business of started from scratch, conceptualized, funded, you know, last five and exited all five, just launched number six on August 28th last month or last week, excuse me. But I always say, whatever you think the, the right path is, you're absolutely wrong. You know, when you start something, you know, that, that whatever your plan is on going forward, it's, you know, the only guaranteed thing is that that is not going to happen. You need to understand and welcome the pivots and the roadblocks and, and, you know, really embrace that as they often create new opportunities and, and leads you in a direction that will ultimately put you in the right place long term. I always also often say there's a lot of paths up the mountain. You know, everybody has their own path, but you just got to keep focused on going to the top. And what's right for you is not right for me and vice versa. And, you know, everybody kind of, you know, will we'll, we'll proceed, you know, through life in a different path. But just keeping your eye on the true north and, and getting to whatever goal it is, is kind of the most important. And recognizing that, you know, there's no one way up it. There's a lot. And when you give yourself the, the flexibility of seeing multiple paths, you can often choose a better one as you start walking, walking up or walking up the road. Yeah. I think that's a great bit of advice too, because so many young people in the college age or young college age, I mean, we have kind of older non-traditional students too, but usually the younger ones are the ones who are following sort of like this path that a parent have, has laid out for them mm -hmm. or, you know, they are going to the same school their ki their friends are all going to go to after high school. And I'm like, well, then you're just like in the 13th grade. If you do that, like you're not, right. you're not really expanding like you did and meeting all these new people because you got out of the town, you know? So yeah, it's really, it's really easy, uh, you know, because it's comfortable, I guess, for us just kind of to stay with what we know. But yeah, I think to your point, the best learning happens when we are uncomfortable forced to be nimble, as you said, and, and land on our feet in adverse situations. That's pretty much what's worked for me. Yeah, I, I see that as you, you talked about common denominators, that that is one, uh, you know, they, they say you always get out of your comfort zone, but but it's not about solely getting out of your comfort zone. It's being okay with the unknown. It's okay, you know, risking something and and being very good at failure and loving failure. It's a weird thing, but I still struggle with it. But I preach it to my kids. Like, you've got to be really, really good at failing and, and completely come, you know, have this like just peace and, and sense of comfort when, you know, you try something and it doesn't work. But it's all about the effort and trying repeatedly, repeatedly. And, and, yeah. You know, I always talk a lot about about playing the curve, you know, and to your point where, you know, the 13th grade. Oftentimes, I mean, the world is so dynamic, it's shifting. So, you know, it takes so long for you to get from one place to the next in terms of growth and goals that if you're if on the clock, you know, 12, 3, you know, 9, 6, I'm doing this opposite for you. But, you know, if you're running at 12 o'clock and everybody else is running at 12 o'clock, the world's going to shift. So that by the time you get, you know, to that place, the world has already kind of shifted. So I, I talk about playing the curve and thinking about not where the world is today, but where the world's going to be at in a year from now, two years from now, three years from now, and then running out at the three o'clock position. And, and, this, and by the time you get to three o'clock, 
it's shifted into like that true north, that true, you know, 12 o'clock position. Hope that makes sense. But no, no, it does. And there's so many examples like right now that we can look at one that when you as you were speaking about that, one thing I thought of was this sort of like coexistence between generations. So you have like this sort of like always there's a strange rub of like the the Gen Z generation and like mm-hmm. the, you know, Gen X generation, right? And the older Gen X people are and, and boomers who are still working are sort of like, you know, resistant in many ways and many times to the Gen Z generation. That is just very just very different thing. That quite honestly is one of the most, I think, sort of like unique and impressive generations that we've seen in our, our history because they grew up completely with this, this digital age. So I tell a lot of people, like, you know, the older X generation, I'm like, you kind of need to learn how to communicate with those guys. And they need to understand how to bring you forward. And somehow, because you're kind of both being left behind, right? Because there's knowledge that they're gaining from older Gen Xers as well that they're not getting if they shut them out. So, yeah, I mean, in many aspects, you're right. The world sort of will be misaligned if we're not all figuring out how to kind of move forward together. And you see that, right? I mean, you, you go back to, you know, the generation when kind of America came into power post, you know, Industrial Revolution and, and went through World War One and then World War Two. And I always think about the generation of World War Two. You know, those people were hardened as a, as a generation. I mean, they were gritty they faced a lot of adversity and they faced a lot of turmoil and difficult times and then you know the next generation of the baby boomers came in and you know the late 1960s and the 70s of the hippie era and and I always imagine what that prior generation thought about the next generation but then those people came into you know they they matured and they created amazing companies and you know some of the, the best companies that existed in the history of the world and now you know you get the next generation kind of you know, they're like, oh, that next generation's not as good as we were. I think human beings, specifically Americans, are always looking down at the next generation. But give it time, that next generation, the world shifts and they create great things. And so I'm really fascinated on, you know, the differences between the generations. But when it, when they boil it down and it, it's really, you know, perspective, right? It's the perspective that creates, you know, gratitude. If you've only known nice things your whole life and, you know, you certainly see that in Los Angeles, a lot of people that have just had kind of lived a very sheltered life in this certain income levels and certain perspective there. I, I found like they're not that happy, but you have people that have kind of covered the spectrum, started in a place and really experienced one side versus the next. And I think that that really creates a lot of, you know, we're kind of balanced people that they always have the, you know, the recollection of, you know, it could be different for me, you know, and I, and I fear sometimes, you know, with in, in this day and age, you know, people are kind of losing perspective or their perspectives are shifting or they're getting manipulated because they're watching something fake on Instagram and saying, Hey, I think I need to live this life that doesn't really fundamentally hold a lot of the characteristics that, you know, create, balanced human beings. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's definitely one of the biggest issues we face now is that people can project 
what is this ideal scenario on Instagram. And then you have millions of people trying to aspire to be it without realizing that that yacht was perhaps rented or it wasn't theirs and it was all staged and <laughs> the clothing was borrowed. And there were like 1 million photos you didn't see where they didn't look, <laughs> look so great. And they were all the outtakes. And yeah, it's really, I think it's funny. Um, I'm not sure if it was HBO, but I think it was HBO or Showtime. They did a film, I think it's called Famous or Insta Famous or something. And they chronicle how they take 10 unknown people and they create Instagram influencers like in a month or something crazy, all through manipulation, like, you know, fake clicks and they had fake clothes. And, and like by the end of like two months, they all had like 10 million followers and were, but it was all just completely manufactured. So Moral of the story, if anyone's listening, is do not get caught up in what you think people's lives are when you see them on Instagram, because nine times out of ten, it could be BS. So Correct. <laughs> there's yeah. that, you know. Um, so but with your journey, though, after college, of course, you founded Byte. So what is Byte exactly? And um, my goodness, one bill, like one billion dollars? Is that a B, right? Not an M. So talk about that. Yeah, what's going on? So, you know, it was interesting. Uh, for, for context, Byte was the fifth company I started, and I had a few others. And, and while, you know, it, it is true and accurate that it was the fastest growing company to reach a billion-dollar valuation, and we ended up selling the company for over a billion in, in cash. And that journey was three and a half years. I always say it was a 15-year-old startup because the learnings that I learned for in the previous four, you know, the first one was not glamorous. It nearly went bankrupt in 2008, 2009 during the financial crisis. I didn't take a day off of work for three and a half years, not a Saturday or Sunday. I was just digging myself out, trying to keep my nose above water and, and not you know, go bankrupt and squeaked it out. Got it kind of back healthy a number of years later, but really got religion on metrics and what constitutes healthy businesses and unhealthy businesses. And you know, I, I they can speak for hours on that, but each subsequent business got a little bit better, got a little bit stronger, and was able to leverage the last one into the next one, and so forth and so on. And so by the, the time you know Byte came around, people, you know, I was traditionally a finance guy. What did I know about orthodontics? Absolutely nothing. My peer group thought I was crazy. They were all thinking I was going to fail, but. What I didn't share with anybody is the DNA with Byte, with a, a direct-to-consumer invisible aligner company. So if you're familiar with Invisalign or orthodontics, Byte... Yeah, I've had them. <laughs> sold, yeah, got great teeth. Byte sold the, uh, the, the aligners, which subsequently moved your teeth into place and, and gave people you know, smiles that they wanted. Um, but what oh, was wait, so let me just stop you right there and make sure right. I... Let me. I'm sorry to interrupt. I just want to make sure I understand it because I did have Invisalign. So you mean so you so your product was not like the actual system itself. You tr Byte was like the tray, the the tray component of these systems. And so it could have been Invisalign, Smile Director. Sure, I was having I was having uh, dinner with a, a buddy of mine who is a professor of orthodontics at the local uh, University of Southern California, USC, and he was going through a tough time in his life. And he said, you know, not only going through this tough time, but I'll probably be out of business in eight to 10 years from now. I said, what do you mean? You're an orthodontist. There's always going to be teeth to, to straighten. He said, the advancements in technology 
uh, were getting so great that software was able to better predict movements of teeth than a traditional orthodontist could. And subsequent to that, he said, you know, these, these Invisalign, which was started in 1997, these pieces of plastic you put in your mouth, and as you know, kind of these sequential trays that each tray moves your teeth just a little bit and put the next one in and the next one and the next one is like is really fascinating. They're they're doing and moving teeth faster and better than wires and brackets in the vast majority of cases. It's specifically in the mild to moderate cases, which in his world were 80 percent of the of the cases that he saw as a big orthodontist and as a professor. And then at, at the end of sake, we're having, or excuse me, the end of sushi, we're, and we had a little sake. He said, and by the way, the Invisalign patent is coming off in about 18 months. And I said, what does that mean? He goes, well, in the majority of cases, dentists can treat patients remotely. And I said, okay, so if they can treat remotely in any part of the U.S., and then I started to ask financial questions. Well, how much does it really cost to, you know, produce as a manufacturer these trays is very little and it just the light bulb went on in that moment i'm like okay i'm really good at marketing to the masses i'll figure out all the disciplines in orthodontics i'll recruit the you know everybody i need to do this and i can bring this product to the masses for a fraction of the cost and for context this was a really really important thing for me because i would have given up anything as a youth to have braces wasn't in the cards had crooked teeth lived with those crooked teeth for many many years and you know i was really passionate about teeth because it, it it i felt it plagued me kind of growing up and it was a big a big thing i was very self-conscious of so when i kind of those light bulbs went on and you know our product was 100% the same as Invisalign, but 30% the cost. You know, we stripped out all the, the, to be blunt, we stripped out all the expenses, you know, associated and all the people associated with, with delivering a traditional Invisalign. And it was, it was really great. Um, we were able to serve a very wide population. Kerry Washington came on board and bought in equity in the company and, and in turn was a spokesperson. And we were really, really, uh, you know, it, it was just a really wonderful story. You would walk in our call center some of the times and, and see our customer service agents crying of the stories. You know, there was, there was mothers thanking us because their children, you know, were contemplating suicide and now they were able to straighten their teeth and they could afford it. I mean, it was, it was really crazy, but it was one of these things that we, you know, it's been kind of, um, we want to bring, you know, typically what's been reserved to certain demographics into the masses. We're doing that next with our, our, our next company, Alter, AlterMe.com, which was, it's a similar model to Bite, but bringing health and nutrition, you know, into what I would say is the flyover states of America that, that don't get the access that other, other cities do. So. Yeah. I, I just, no, I just say I thought of like places like Appalachia, for example, or, yes. you know, mountains where people don't really have access to healthcare, dental care, the way the rest of the country may have. But, um, okay. But I am so amazed by, by that story because, um, 
Yeah, Invisalign. Not that we're going to do a commercial now and talk about products, but yeah, it's it's it was like the first that was in that space, so it was really expensive. But um, I didn't know that, like you just said. So basically, more like eighty percent of the your friend told you, like maybe eighty percent of the orthodontal cases, they were the ones that really could be sort of corrected or modified without the orthodontist uh, having to actually do a a braces procedure. That many of the of their cases. Yeah, and, and most importantly, you know, we, we treated only mild to moderate cases. And the ones that were too complex, we referred off to the orthodontist. We actually, in, in most cases, really increased orthodontic visits to the traditional office um, when they, you know, studied the metrics. We were, we were a positive impact for the community of traditional orthodontists. But, you know, in, in the case that there were mild to moderate cases, which are, were Surprising to me, the vast majority were able to move the teeth, you know, quicker with the invisible aligners than than you would ever anticipate, and and bring the solution into, you know, these communities that didn't have access. I mean, it's shocking to see how many people we serve that would have never gone into an orthodontist office ever because they just couldn't drive that far. And, and also doing it worldwide. I was having dinner in Colorado last week um, with a, a guy from Argentina who's a well-known guy who plays polo. And he walked in with aligners and I, and I said, are, are those Invisalign? Uh, he and his wife both. And they said, no, it's a company named Bite. I kind of quietly chuckled. Uh, but uh, it, 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 <laughs> you know, you're really seeing it now all over the world. Um, serving people. And, the, and we sold it and the company that bought it is the largest dental conglomerate on the planet. And they've done a tremendous job, you know, with taking it and advancing it well beyond our capabilities. That's amazing. Well, that's good because I lost my retainer for my business yeah. line. So I'm, I'm, that's good to know. Uh, I think I'm <laughs> just Still saying I might have to, yeah, find another alternative there. I'll be emailing you. Uh, so gosh, well, we're almost at the end of our time, but I do have two um, really great questions, I think, for our audience who might be inspired by uh, philanthropy and, and being an entrepreneur themselves. Uh, first question is about the, the the Blake Johnson Alliance that you created in 2015. So uh, share what that organization is about and what you guys do. Uh, absolutely. And, and wanted to kind of make one note real quick, you know, gr- growing up where I did, I, I was very sober all along at, at you know, at the hands extended down to me to give me an opportunity. And thankfully, I was, you know, wise enough to take those and, and try to learn and, you know, get to a different place from that. But there were countless people that, you know, that helped me along the way. Some weren't even realizing they were helping at the time. But I've always, you know, had this kind of clear idea of, of, of where my life would have been without those people extending a hand. And I always told myself, you know, when I'm in that place in life, I'm going to try to repay that. First thing I did literally when I got out of college and, and moved out of Arizona to California uh, was I went down to the local Big Brothers, Big Sisters office and at 24 years old signed up to be a, a big brother. So, and then that's always been a real driving force. I feel like and to this day, the more I can give back, the better everybody will be. In, in, in general and, and me included. And so that's been a kind of a pervasive thing that, you know, we've had not only kind of within our family, but within our, 
you know, companies and, and really consistently trying to pitch in as much we can. Um, so I had sold kind of the third company in, in, two, in September 2014 and was in a position financially to what I feel have a greater impact. And so we started this alliance. I truthfully, I don't like the name. We, I want to name it something else. I hate that it's named as my name in it, but it, it was named by somebody else and it just kind of set in and took hold. But it was really focused on children's based charities, specific in, in Los Angeles community. And, you know, we tend to focus, we, we do more than just, you know, children, but we were most passionate about children and really and really focusing on what I what I deem is, you know, I poured concrete during the summers and during college. And so I always give the analogy, I want to I want to get it when the concrete's wet. You know, and I find like we can move the needle the most and have the biggest impact when we reach the youth at the appropriate age. And so we initially established that and really kind of tend to focus on, you know, 12 to 15 charities here locally that have you know, uh, uh, not only a focus on children, but a really good track history on, you know, on putting dollars to work and really moving the needle in specific, you know, lives. And so that ranges yeah. from, I'm very passionate about big brothers, big sisters, you know, entrepreneurship in, in children and really teaching certain skill sets that will later, you know, once instilled, Give them, give them kind of the right perspective and the right focus to, you know, have the greatest chance to, to, to make an impact. And is that the, is that the, the big careers, which is the name of sort of like the, the mission driven portion of the Alliance? Really interesting that that came up. The CEO of Big Brothers, Big Sisters, Orange County, which is the 800 pound gorilla in, in that universe of all the regions in the U.S. It really, you know, hats off to them. They've really crushed it. I was having a conversation with their CEO at a lunch a year ago. And, you know, I was saying that I love the organization, spent time doing it, time, money, et cetera, et cetera. And I saw this weird kind of gap where they bring in all these kids and, you know, to, to be blunt, to various degrees of success, right. And getting them, getting the kids through, you know, some, some do well, some do better than others. And, but there was no real vehicle, so to speak, to take the all-stars to that next generation. You'll see some just winners come through. I mean, these kids are so smart and so passionate and, and they, they can articulate and they can think and they clearly, I mean, are built differently genetically, but there, there was not a point that identified the ones that really had the greatest potential and taking those kids and then really getting them in a metaphorical vehicle, so to speak, to really take them to the next level. I mean, it would be the equivalent of a sports team. You see just an absolute all-star, you know, that has the craziest athletic ability, but yet that all-star is still grouped in with all the other decent athletes. There needs to be able to identify that all-star and put them on a path to become the next, you know, greatest thing the world talks about. And so we, we sought to fix, fix that problem and we have, and it's been great so far. I get really fired up on this. And so 
with my kind of background and being in, you know, the Los Angeles area and having access to a lot of these, these CEOs of these major companies, I was able to go handpick specific CEOs and pair them up with these kids. You know, I mean, uh, last night I was at dinner and I got a, a guy who I mentored a long time ago, Hugo Gomez. Um, I He went off beyond me and to start this great company, CEO of a great company. But I got a text from him at dinner last night saying, this has been so rewarding. I got this kid. He was telling me all about it. Incredibly smart. And, you know, we've, we've done this and we're, we're growing it right now. So it's, uh, you know, we'll, we'll come back to it at some point, but I, it's, it's been, it's been fun. Excellent words of inspiration from Blake Johnson, Los Angeles-based entrepreneur and philanthropist. And uh, it's been a wonderful, just inspirational. Again, I use that word. It's a really inspiring conversation. I love what you're doing and it makes a difference in the world. So thank you for being here and telling us your story today and sharing here on Motivational Mondays. It was great to meet you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Motivational Mondays presented by the National Society of Leadership and Success and available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I'm Corey Andrew Powell, and I'll see you again here next week.